Right, welcome back to any dedicated listeners out there. We mentioned we've just finished. You may have just left us and immediately clicked to hear what comes next. Or you might be giving yourself a bit of time and maybe you're listening to this a week or so later. Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. But um, yeah, a little bit of a bonus for you. You, the last, it's a bridge on from where we were last at. Uh, mm-hmm. Previously on Pop Swap, <laughs> um, <laughs> Carlos <laughs> had been talking about his top five adaptations of, um, well, sorry, his, his uh, hopeful adaptations yep. of comics into possible TV adaptations at the time. And then I was asked, I was about to be asked about any particular adaptations I'd be looking forward to. Mm-hmm. And I thought instead of going down that road review, I'd be curious to explore this conversation a bit. How do you feel about the fact that I get the sense personally that a lot of people consider until until work of a certain art form has been adapted into, for most people now, yes, then the movie would be... The definitive cons- version? Considered, yeah, like the definitive right. version, like you say, of something. Yeah. And I'm just I'm curious guessing. why why people would think i mean this is coming from the point of view of somebody who i've definitely mentioned in previous episodes is uh, has been you know like an adamant cinephile over the years and stuff and then kind of gone in and out of that at times in my personality and stuff but uh yeah it does intrigue me how like it almost puts down certain art forms a bit Mm -hmm. by kind of suggesting that until you know no i mean until a comic has actually been adapted into a film yeah, it's not quite reached its pinnacle of what it could be as a crown in a chair, or you know, it's yeah. not really. And I kind of understand someone like Brian K. Vaughan kind of suggesting something like that. And I understand like Alan Moore's opinions of adaptations in the past. Absolutely. When he, I yeah. think he had early talks with Terry Gilliam at some time about a very early eighties adaptation of Watchmen at the time or something, and saying it yeah. wasn't possible. It's it's a comic, and I do think that's interesting. That like, yeah, you should definitely kind of give more merit in my opinion to the art forms that those things are created in because they've been created for a reason in that art form itself so it just intrigues me that people yeah want that adaptation to occur yeah Um, and and i i have thought about that quite a lot actually um what i think is that just film have such a wi- films sorry have such a wider audience it's such a mainstream thing mm-hmm. it's it's ingrained in mainstream society now is to give 2 hours of your time to watch a movie and then that's how you consume that story and yeah. i think just with the Oh, you could get into deep societal problems with this now, but... <laughs> we can go there. Let's go there. That's what I this just bonus think, is for. <laughs> I just think with the rise of social media and YouTube and these kinds of platforms that offer people endless instant gratification, mm-hmm. people think that they can spend less of their time and get that dopamine hit of that story from just sitting down to watch a movie or a TV show. And they don't realize that they might be spending the exact same amount of time with that story if they just read it in a novel or if they read it in a comic. Now, I might be generalizing. It might be a thing of, well, 
I find reading difficult, especially if it's a novel and the words are close together and the font is difficult. Maybe my eyesight isn't too great. I might be dyslexic, whatever. But I can tell you now, my old man is dyslexic and he struggles and he can read a book a week and he has done since my mother got him reading. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, he didn't read for 25 years or 30 years. My mom started giving him books and he loved it. And it was just the type of books that he picked up. He loves historical fiction that isn't too dense, that the writer won't spend five pages describing a tree, um, but that will really give him a sense of that era, you know? He mm. loves that and he loves ancient battles and how they're written and reading that because it's like transporting them to a completely different world. And it, that's exactly why I like those things as well. And I understand that. Um, and reading it gives you something else than what will just kind of the act of passively watching it on a screen because you can imagine it. You can put yourself there. You can feel it. And I think that's the beauty of reading especially a novel. Um, and for me, the thing that baffles me is that a lot of people will look at a comic and be like, oh, the effort of reading that, you know? And little do people know, you can read a 50-issue comic series in no time at all. You can read it in a couple of days. If you put down, if you, if you just sit down and start flicking through I guarantee you can read maybe 20 issues in a day and then you'll be done in a couple of days, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And especially because it's a visual medium as well, it it kind of has the best of both um, and it makes it easier. But to go back to your original point, I think it's an attention span thing and I think it's an instant gratification thing or at least yeah. not realizing where the gratification comes from. Um, but I think the attention span thing is huge because to be fair, reading, whether it's a novel or a comic, obviously more so a novel needs more of your attention. Now the same can be said of a comic as well, because you have yeah. to read it. You have to absorb the visual storytelling, the sequential art, all that kind of stuff. But you can sit down and watch a series or, or, or a movie and, and you are not asked to participate in it, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think they all have different strengths as well, personally. I think yeah. I think they all tell stories in very different ways, each art form as well. And I think, yeah. I think they have a particular... There's certain advantages to one that maybe the other doesn't have and i think yeah. i think by everybody just having the opinion that well when it's something eventually gets adapted into its cinematic equivalent mm. that it's suddenly achieved the kind of the, the optimum level of however you could experience that story that's to me is a bit naive because there's certain things that cinema does excellently yeah that can't be done through a novel and likewise, that uh, uh, that theatre can do, that a novel can't do, that television can do, that or a film a can't game. do, yeah. that video games can do. And they, they yeah. all express an art form in a very different way and, and a story-telling uh, experience in a very different way. Like maybe with a novel, you can get inside a character's head and you can experience something yeah. from a psychological point of view 
and uh, from a mindset sort of point of view in in a way that you cannot explore in other art forms that, yeah. i mean you can maybe give that a rough attempt through like the use of a voiceover in cinema or tv or something yeah. but it's nothing it's nowhere is near close um and then for me like with something like cinema you can you can experience a you through a, an audio visual experience you can completely create the atmosphere of a place and a time yeah. and communicate that in such an immersive way that many other art forms can't capture that like there's there's that can't be captured through a book in the same way through descriptions and it can't be captured through television in a way because television even though it does become more whatever we deem as cinematic as it get the budgets increase and you know the yeah. the actors that star in them become actors we're familiar through cinema and stuff still to me like the visual the form of visual storytelling in such a short format of like a, a two-hour sort of time span focusing purely on images to tell you a story and the idea of show don't tell yeah then that that strict way of sort of like depicting things again is like the strength of cinema it's something it can do that that television can't necessarily do and then television can bridge that gap i suppose between there's either like the you know what we consider the golden age of tv the sopranos kind of mm-hmm. the wire experience of like bridging that gap i suppose between long form storytelling that you may have experienced through literature through like novels where you get to experience characters through a very long duration and feel like you get to know the characters inside out because you're watching the actors on screen play them for such a long spanning sort of season of television like one after the next and yeah. the film can't capture that experience with an actor and a character in the same way but then there's also the thing with tv that it does it's a friend in your home it's like this serialistic sort yeah. of nature of television the old form of television where you know it's like it's it's either like sticking to a format that's familiar and it's comforting and it's cozy and it has that almost bridging that line between what theater does as well where you're you're intimate and you're in this yeah. full stagey kind of environment with the actor very close to you and and then that's but I'll go off on one like about it too much but yeah that that's the thing to me they all do something very differently in comics it again is another really powerful experience it's entirely unique to itself as well compared to mm-hmm. the others so if it's you and it, yeah if the mediums are used properly and you can really tell and I think it's especially evident say Let's take two examples of two different mediums. Let's say The Last of Us 2, mm-hmm. especially the, the second one, because that, that was an emotional experience. And then say Saga for comics. And then think of any kind of film that gives you that, that a, a kind of an emotional journey, like, I don't know, The Shawshank Redemption or something. But Saga, when you read it, you know that you know why it was done as a comic and and because it uses its medium to full effect so there is certain scenes perhaps where something emotional happens and there may not be a lot of dialogue and it's all done through the art or how the art is used or maybe a character death and then you turn the page and the next five pages are just black Mm-hmm. blacked out pages of nothingness yeah. of emptiness there's no art no dial no nothing and it hits you like a ton of bricks mm-hmm. and it's it's using that medium to full effect um or 
for a video game, say The Last of Us Part 2, where you go through this character journey, this emotional, this harrowing, it's a harrowing game mm-hmm. um, of just psychological torment. But you are playing as these two opposing characters who will come head to head and you love both of them. And the game gives you this experience of pure empathy, pure Mm -hmm. empathy, just playing through it. And then at the end tells you, it doesn't tell you to pick a side because it kind of, and I really don't want to give spoilers away, but it kind of Mm -hmm. forces you at the very end of the game to jump back and forth between them. And it's not like you choose your own ending. The game has an ending, but you have to experience it and you have to play through it and go through all the crap. And it's a long game. It's a sometimes boring game, but that's the mm-hmm. point. Um, and it's difficult. But the game, if you really let it sink into you, is really trying to tell you something, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's really trying to open up that experience in you, which I don't think could really be replicated in a TV show. And I know HBO are adapting The Last of Us right now, and I'm really curious to see it. And I would love to see what they do with it and how they replace that that interact the, the interactivity, interactiveness. Mm-hmm. Of of the of the game, but like, and I remember Neil Druckmann, the game director. He kind of wrote and created it, and he's also uh, writing the the adaptation now as well for HBO with the guy who did Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. Um, he ta- he was talking one time in an interview and was saying like, "There's no other medium where you'll hear the the audience say that they are someone." But you get that with video games. Like, oh, look at this. Now I'm Ellie. Yeah. And they, they don't even say like, oh, now I'm playing as this person. Or now we're going to walk in this person's. No, they literally say, oh, look, now I'm Ellie. Now I'm Joel. Because they mm-hmm. switch characters. And it's, it's that kind of thing that you won't get with a, with a, with a film or something. But I did want to bring it back and to your whole original hypothesis and i think maybe maybe there's a certain truth to it but maybe also we might be being a little hard on people because i think the rise surge in popularity of tv shows maybe it's going in ebbs and flows or dips and or valleys and mountains i don't know how to describe it but perhaps it's a little bit of the opposite in mainstream now where people need more time or they want, mm. they crave more time with characters now. Because if you think about it, in mainstream, we don't actually talk about movies as much as we talk about what TV shows people are watching or what they're watching on Netflix or Prime or Apple TV yeah. or whatever. And I think it's because people enjoy spending more time getting to know characters, getting to know the story, getting inside people's heads that you just can't really get from a two-hour movie. Yeah. I think there's there's an element of truth to that. I agree with you to an extent on that, but I also feel that um, I also feel that maybe there's possibly 
subject matters and genres being explored through television now that earlier on would have been more commonly explored through cinema like there yeah. would there would have been more money going in from yeah. studios to have a lot more bankroll towards mid mid budget explorations of like various genres and types of cinema that would have been commonly in the cinema sort of day in day out that have over time become less popularized due to the, like the increasing kind of like the the huge vehicles dominating and then you just having Oscar season in particular for yeah other things to be dealt with but like that that kind of gray area in between where a lot of directors and talent got to explore really interesting ideas there that people resonated with yeah. and become future classics or cult classics and things like that a lot of that talent seemed to transition over into television mm-hmm. and uh, I suppose the the only difference for me in my opinion is that television advertises itself as and always has done I mean it maybe um, maybe this is just something more that the media have created than television itself but uh the idea of like the the writer being king in television yeah. and the showrunner being king as like some rather than the director or the kind of like the 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 you know the visual storytelling approach towards it as being the central focus yeah it's more explorations of like dialogue and storytelling through performances over a long period of time and that thing dominating which i think gives you a different because the formats are different, gives you a very different experience, like I say, from you could have exactly the same thing and I don't necessarily think that one's a better experience than the other. They're just very different from one another. Yeah. And I think that maybe that we the reason that we talk about TV a lot more is mm. because we have less films to talk about yeah. than we would have done that are of that nature. You know, they, they, they still get made, but they're just not around as much anymore. So people yeah. aren't talking about them as much. Yeah. And of course, we do have the box office behemoths, behemoths, behemoths <laughs> yeah. whatever, that are just unfortunately like the the big blockbuster superhero films or the big, I don't know, Fast and Furious or Godzilla yeah. versus Kong, the big monster movies, the, which don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here and criticize those of films. Of course not. Neither will I. Yeah, I agree. Um, but... Yeah, it, it it may be there's also an element of truth to what Scorsese said that one time where it's removing the possibility of having other films in screens in these cinemas. But I, I also don't think that's entirely true because I do search for those films and I do go to those movies when it's possible, when we're not in a pandemic mm-hmm. um, and when the cinemas are open. Yeah, I tend, but that's mainly because, much like yourself, I grew up a total cinephile. I grew up a total film addict. Yeah. Um, so I will look for them, whereas perhaps the mainstream casual film goer yeah. will just go see the next big Marvel movie or the next big Godzilla film or whatever. Yeah. You know? I understand that those things are still there. They're definitely, like you say, they are still yeah. there. Uh, the, um, it's it's not that they're not made anymore. Like I say, it's just that maybe, like I say, more funding and more exploration of those things and that discovery of new talent maybe takes place through the medium of television a lot more than it would do have done through cinema in the past. And to me, there's there's a little bit of a loss there because you 
like I say, the, the two experiences are very different from one another. And if you just only allow people to experience it through television, you're kind of shortchanging them from 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 it being like in the zeitgeist as much to talk about those types of films in that way because they get made less and less. I'm trying to think what point I'm trying to make here. But uh, it's just more that, like I say, there is a sense of that you're losing out a little bit because you don't get to see those things as commonly explored. And I did... Mm-hmm. I did read an article the once on something which I kind of disagree with at some stage and it was generally about television as a whole and the experience of kind of watching television in comparison to films and mm-hmm. I think that the issue that I have with allowing new talent to develop within the medium of television alone or to give more funding and more attention to people who want to make their break within television is that television in its, by its very nature, is owned by big studios. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? There's no independent yep. studio or there's no indie filmmaker equivalent yep. of a TV studio out there. Yep. So anyone can kind of like, you know, gather together a budget and be George Romero and kind of like on his lunch breaks with his workmates, like film Night of the Living Dead and then yeah. create like a something that changes the face of cinema or something. But that will never happen with television because regardless of where the talent might come from, they're still dealing at the initial outset with a big corporation who have a lot of money behind them, a lot of backing, and they they control and shape something from the outset about like, right, okay, even someone as big as HBO Mm -hmm. who allow a lot of freedom... It's not quite the same. Like, that's what I'm trying to get at. You're kind of missing that very small, low-level experience of and that's where like really unusual things can emerge and really kind of mm-hmm. subversive kind of spontaneous unusual ideas and talent can arise from an atmosphere from like a an atmosphere like that and it, it can in television but the problem is i think that it is all like i say, say it's all overlooked by yeah this big sort of studio there's a network there that want to broadcast something and they have their own agenda there and they have their own kind of decisions on whether stuff gets commissioned or not in the same way that somebody who's an independent filmmaker who's trying to go around the festival circuit doesn't get to experience those things in the same way and until distribution takes place of course yeah you're you're nine out of ten nine out of ten times you're far more likely to just have the ability to make an indie movie than to make an indie TV show because nobody's going to broadcast it. Nobody's <laughs> yeah. going to give it airtime, of course. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas if you make a short film or you make an indie film, you know, you can make it yourself and then just try to get it around festival circles or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. But in saying that, while I agree, I think that it may not always be necessarily the, the hard truth. Um, and maybe it's just the, it's just the eternal optimist inside me. But I, th- I, th- I think maybe you know, channels like I don't know Sundance TV or even some of the British TV shows like on Channel Four or you know even some BBC shows that they really there's some real talent that can be allowed to shine and some some of these small shows like. There's a show now that I'm blanking on the name that you introduced me to. And I think it was a Channel 4 show that I loved. And now I don't remember the name of it. It's kind of a 
Dead Pixels, are you thinking of? Oh, yeah, Pixels. <laughs> Dead Pixels, Pixels. Yeah, yeah. Dead Pixels. Yeah. That, that's a great show. And yes, there's a corporation behind it, but I think that's a show that, you know, would not exist without a smallish channel like Channel 4. Yeah. Which I say smallish in the grand scheme of things. It's not small in Britain and Ireland, mm-hmm. but small in the sense of oh, the ever looming America. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, don't get me wrong. I know that certain, yeah. like you say, there are certain networks out there and people that are more encouraging of new talent. I mean, especially I mean, for anyone who wouldn't have experienced it at the time, but especially sort of like back in the back in the nineties, like Channel Four was quite a I use the word subversive way too much when I speak, but uh, it was that a channel of that nature. You know, it did push boundaries and stuff, yeah. and it was quite brave, and it did kind of give a lot of attention to people who were just broadcasting stuff quite yeah. late at night on the channel, who were taking risks and doing really unusual stuff that was interesting. And they've they kind of lost a bit of that as time went on. They kind of transitioned to E4, came along as a channel, and the presenters there, and it kind of became the maybe the channel four we recognise today kind of emerged then at that stage, but. Uh, Hmm. Yeah, they've always. I understand that there's always going to be networks out there that will support and back that new talent and be looking for people. But I guess the difference is that when when those people come along, like you enter like a recruitment process in through that avenue of exploring it. So you you get on board through like a talent writers program or a directors program, or you kind of like you come on as a runner and work your way up. But you you are part of the corporation, like from. Yeah day one and you you work in it for a good few years to work your way up to prove yourself to get a chance yeah. about right okay we've got you've got that good script let's give you a try and you become like Russell yeah. T Davis or somebody and you know your career starts there and mm-hmm. that's great but it's a very different type of experience from the one with cinema that we were talking about where yeah. there's that thing of just like anybody can have just a dream of doing something and go out and do it and hope yeah. that it works and put the effort in and I understand that I'm maybe a bit hypocritical because there is still the stage there where you need the backing of government funding or, you know, mm-hmm. or the circuit funding or some studio to then want to distribute that thing so people yeah. can actually fucking see it in the first place. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. it's, no, it's no good if just you and your family are watching it, on, yeah. you know, every year at home together. Like somebody needs and there's to nothing see wrong it. For people there's nothing wrong make... with that's the experience yeah. either. Exactly. Yeah. And there's, yeah. I'm not knocking that at all. Yeah. Um, but I yeah. think... Um, and I think every medium has an element of that because, you know, like novels will have to deal with their publishers and mm-hmm. it's very, very difficult to self-publish and very expensive to self-publish. Um, you might only be able to self-publish a couple hundred copies and, you know, and then and, and you'll have editors and things like that everywhere. Uh, like if you want to make it in... in if you want to make it in comics, you kind of got to work for Marvel or DC in America or, you know, work for big manga publishers in Japan if you want to do that, if you're from that part of the world. Or in Britain, you you you, you might need to work for Marvel UK, you know, you might need to work up the ladder that way. Or, But you always see those creators then later shift over and self-publish. Yeah. Um, well... I say self-publish, like they'll publish with Image Comics, which is mm-hmm. the way that business is run is that everything is creator-owned and they take a percentage of profits. Yeah. Um, so their business model is completely different, you know? 
there's still an independent circuit and sensibility to comics as well, though, isn't there? That's maybe a bit more in tune with filmmaking as well. There's still that spirit of like, there's still a lot of people that, but there's, there's very, a lot there's of, very small cult independent yeah. publishers and lots of titles out there and, and writers and people of, that. A lot of like graphic novels you can pick up in bookshops that have been self-published. Yeah. Um, yeah. So know, that, that very, captures the spirit, yeah. I guess, of film a lot more. But I, yeah. like I say, I just think that with television, there's definitely a bit more of a barrier there between that type of experience. Yeah. So, yeah. But to go back to the original point of the adaptations and the definitive versions, I, I'm actually now not sure if, if the grand population of people think that the film adaptation or whatever will be the definitive version. I'm sure there's, I'm sure we're making vast generalizations. No, I'm not, but, I don't know if that's what I was getting at when I maybe raised the question initially. Uh, I was just maybe thinking, I'm just curious why, and I don't think that's the general I don't think that's a general consensus of everyone around the world that they think that's true. Yeah, I just yeah. think the way that things get spoken about in the media and the way Absolutely. they get dealt with, it always makes the implication that that is the case. That's like, finally, yeah. your favourite book is now being turned yeah. into a movie adapted by Steven Spielberg. And it's 100%. like... 100%. Yeah. What? It's like, but why does that matter? Like, I want Steven Spielberg to make movies and do yeah. them well and that's what he does and then I want somebody who wrote whatever my favourite book is or something to do that and do that well that's what they do yeah. it's a different thing it doesn't <laughs> yeah. matter really yeah yeah. and I like I recently to, to think of an example I, I, like recently had an experience watching a Netflix adaptation um, of a comic I really loved um, Lock and Key oh right yeah, yeah. which is written, um, the original comic is written by Joe Hill, who is the son of Stephen King. Mm -hmm. So already talent in his jeans right there. I could have made a jeans trousers pun, but that would have been better written down. Uh, <laughs> audio doesn't really work as well, but anyway. Um, like, so Joe Hill wrote Lock and Key and it's, you know, a... a kind of a playful spin on the haunted house genre of horror, which I, I think is really cool because, you know, his dad is Mr. Horror of the 20th century in mm -hmm. novel format. And uh, Joe Hill has kind of made his living now off um, writing novels and comics. So he wrote Lock and Key and it's basically this magic house, this family who the father has just died. They move into his childhood home the lock or sorry the key house and it's the family is called the lock family very mm -hmm. convenient names all of them but the kids discover uh, while dealing with the death of their father all the kind of classic horror tropes shall we say to use that word um they discover that there are a set of keys throughout the house that open doors and grant kind of magic powers basically or they grant certain powers that might represent certain elements of the stages of grief and those kind of things and it's a very very poignant comic um and it it gets heavy and it gets dark but it's also very light um i mean to read it's not super heavy going mm -hmm. um and yet Netflix picked it up and I know Netflix have been pumping out a lot of shit lately 
and it had this sugary, glossy TV feel to the... So they made a, the obviously the TV show and they've even commissioned a second season now. I don't know how it was... I, for me, it was awful. It just completely missed the tone and the point of everything. Um, and now I feel like the general public are going to see that and be like, yeah, I'm going to yeah. completely disassociate myself with anything to do with this show now. Whereas part of the reason I want a lot of these things to get adapted is I would love people to then go and read the original source material after like Sweet Tooth, if it's good, it's super exciting that maybe more people are going to go read the the comic series now you know mm -hmm. and i think it works that way like both ways especially given maybe the type of person you are or or how you approach these things but game of thrones made me want to read the books and i picked up the first book and then of course the last season came out and kind of put me off the entire thing and yep. the fact that he still hasn't finished the last book i like I, i'm not investing my time and emotional energy to get into this and never have it finished in a satisfying way so but still the the, the brilliance of the show up until a certain point made me want to go back to the source material and i think there are more and more people like that now as well yeah so i think just the general issue then is probably just marketing for the adaptations yeah. and the circulation on social media and people sharing shit on YouTube or, you know, retweeting stuff and things like that, you know? So mm -hmm. like, oh, this new Netflix show, Sweet Tooth, it's going to be the next Stranger Things. <laughs> <laughs> shit like that, you know? And maybe you know, four out of 10 people will go back and check the book out. But yeah, I think it's just prevalence on the internet yeah. that, that does that, that feeds that. Um, I think the people who adapt the things just need, like as long as the people, as long as the people who are doing the adapting have a good understanding of, what they're adapting and what they're adapting into then yeah. that's all that matters for me really like i i don't I'm, I, I don't desperately feel the need that when i enjoy something i need to i want to see an adaptation of it in another form or something but yeah i do enjoy the experience when it's done well where or, or you know when you when you experience something maybe even the other way around like an example of that for me would be like the exorcist or something where like to me like the movie experience of that and the novel experience of that are two very entirely different experiences from one another yeah. and both are absolutely wonderful examples of their own art form like they do both yeah. things perfectly like in a very yeah. different way from each other um and as long as the people that are doing it like I say kind of have an understanding as to why yeah. Why am I using this format, and what is what is it about this format that can be done that, and the narrative. Uh, that couldn't be done through the previous version of it that you're so used to experiencing? Like, yeah, and the narrative techniques and and of each medium, and why those narrative techniques are necessary, and mm -hmm. it's why I, you know, I I enjoy seeing adaptations. I really do. I it's it's probably one of my favorite things to do is to see an adaptation of something that I've read or go back and read something 
that I've seen that I really love. Yeah. That I know there's a big wealth or a universe of stuff. I just love stuff like that has a, a good bit of world building or something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. But the experience of watching an adaptation, it needs to be different from the original, you know. So say, for example, changes to plot that, you know, are so... They're so prevalent in comic nerds for I'm referring specifically to like superhero stuff. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the faithful, the Marvel and DC faithful who will only exclusively read those mainstream superhero American comics mm -hmm. will see differences in those films who are made like those films are made predominantly from the guiding hand of a film producer in Kevin Feige, who was the, the, the head honcho over there in that studio, obviously owned by Disney, so it's a massive corporation backing the whole thing. <laughs> um, but he's at his core as a film producer, and you can see it in the way the films are made and the way everything is kind of structured and built. And he's changed a lot from the, the books and for the better, for the, most, for the most part. But again, there's always a few faithful that'll be like, no, I'm not watching that, dude, that that character's a girl now. <laughs> yeah. Ridiculous things, you know, that um, I think are necessary for whatever your medium happens to be. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I made that point very well, but knowing that, say for example, you need to drop this character that is useless for a film, even though you may have been fond of it in a book. For example, Tom Bombadil in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Maybe it spends way too much time not advancing the plot. Mm -hmm. And it's a necessary omission from the film due to the pacing of that medium and due to the, you know, the narrative structure of that medium. Yeah. Of course, you're going you're, you're to take those things out because it will pull focus away from your three-act structure, shall we say. Yeah. And I hate, you know... Werner Herzog would hate you using the three-act structure thing. Oh, it's a, it's a very predictable form of storytelling. I don't like using the three-act structure. All that. But you know, what I'm, you know what I'm trying to I say. I know what you mean. Uh, but I think people are a bit unaware as well of um, a little bit unaware possibly of the work that goes into it when things are adapted as well. Like uh, like you mentioned there, like oh, you yeah. kill like characters that got rid of or like what a deemed like composite characters are created which are you know combined together like a Elements set of, of two, characters yeah. within a story and turn them yeah. into another character the UN seeing this as one character in this TV show that serves a function of hitting this plot point and this plot point and yeah. kind of conveniently doing that and it's an art it's a it's a, such a skill the people that kind of are really great at doing those adaptations yeah. and taking them uh, maybe we're referring more to kind of like the element of the, the screenwriting aspect of it now but uh but yeah, there's a lot of work that goes into somebody kind of like taking that and stripping it down and making all the parts work in a very different way for another format um, yeah. that's to be kind of respected and sort of appreciated when people do that work. Um, and yeah. that, that, as you said, that is a skill in itself and I find that fascinating. And I am obviously, I've told you a few times, like I try to write screenplays i find writing in that format really cool because my predominant medium i know i talk a lot about a lot about comics or books or whatever but my mm -hmm. kind of predominant medium that i 
love is is film mm-hmm. um and I try to write screenplays and I have thought that exercises for me just to practice the the craft I guess just to practice the mechanics the techniques the the structure the formatting is to maybe take something that I've read and try to adapt it in my own way um in we'll say a film or maybe an episode of television or something like that or mm-hmm. try to write an episode of it like I took uh I had started this once I wrote like a two-page story treatment for a season of television for Green Lantern and now it turns out that HBO Max are writing okay <laughs> are actually making a Green Lantern TV show because I'd yeah. read um to get your Google Drive hacked did you <laughs> yeah they stole Before it from announcement. me yeah. they stole it but anyway I'd, I'd read these I have these three massive tomes of Green Lantern it's a huge pocket of a universe in itself in DC Comics uh, with a bunch of characters and it's own rich mythology and I love it it's like Lord of the Rings in space it's great mm-hmm. and it's ridiculous but who cares and I thought right this is going to be cool I'm going to take this thing and try to adapt it myself and put everything that I all the elements that I love and the the story beats and the emotional heart of what I love from this and put it into a screenplay and I thought originally right let's write a, a film let's write like try to bang out a 90 page screenplay from this you know which will take a little bit of work but we'll do it but I ended up starting to write the kind of treatment few notes and I started typing up a lot of stuff which characters I wanted and I'm like nah this needs to be a TV show <laughs> <laughs> and it just gave me such an appreciation for Peter Jackson and all the people that made it lo- the Lord of the Rings yeah. that how did they get all of that into three films you know that's that's yeah. incredible it's 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 mad um and of course I want to bring it back to Game of Thrones. Those writers, no matter how much shit we gave them for the last season and a half, Mm -hmm. they are incredibly skilled at adapting um, that source material. Yeah. And I think that's where their strength is. There's a lot to work with there, isn't there? There's so much fat to chew like yeah. with those books <laughs> to condense yeah. that down to that experience like say i mean it's a, it's a really big challenge they did an incredible job like you say i, I agree yeah. and i've uh, we obviously have maybe we've not really explored it in the podcast before but uh yeah we felt as uh as frustrated and disappointed with those the way that ended as everybody else did but uh yeah but i don't part, want them to be remembered for yeah that they're incredible ending. talents as far as that side of things is yeah. concerned 100 percent and maybe you know maybe that's just their area of expertise is is that yeah that little skill of of being able to yeah. take the source material and but and when you have no source it. material to adapt any longer yeah then obviously that becomes a challenge so it's kind of self-explanatory yeah. really isn't it like yeah. for, for all the kind of like i mean looking at it in hindsight maybe i was a bit overly critical and a bit harsh at the time but thinking yeah. back like say it's, it's understandable that that would have been the outcome Given that you your skill set, like you say, is to adapt, and then you can yeah. no longer adapt, you can just only create. So you are kind of a bit of a maybe a yeah. particular weakness of your own talents there. But yeah, yeah, and I mean, like, because then you're just you're creating everything from scratch, and you have to tie it into all of these 
threads that you put together but we're all coming from a place yeah you know and then all the kind of heavy lifting had been done but you need to mold it and all this kind of stuff and i i just started kind of thinking about that um i started doing that green lantern treatment about six months ago and i ended up writing two or three pages of kind of where this season of tv in my brain would go and what characters i would introduce and i would do like point of view episodes kind of in that style of the first season of lost mm -hmm. and build it up that way and i ended up writing all this stuff and then it overwhelmed me because i'm like oh, there's so many characters here there's so much <laughs> stuff what do i take that's important and and bring it in you know mm -hmm. and i i think that's a completely underrated skill from those two writers benioff and 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 Vice, who did uh, Game yeah. of Thrones. To use an analogy, I think there's, uh, I love analogies, I think there's, you know, <laughs> there's uh, there's some people who are, there'd be a person who's incredibly talented at interior decoration and making your home look spectacular mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, and placing everything in its right place and knowing how to remove certain things and add certain things and contribute that way. And then there's an architect who could build yeah. you the dream home and the dream space from scratch and one isn't necessarily more talented than the other their talents are just entirely different from each other yeah but you know they're they're achieving they're heading towards similar goals but uh you know it's a very different skill set one is building and the other is kind of rearranging and ordering things Molding. yeah to create something new which is yeah. a skill like, yeah but yeah to sum up, I don't think any one version of anything is the definitive version. Sometimes it's possible, especially if a version of that story is crap in its original <laughs> form. Yeah. Um, you know, like, for example, I think Lock and Key, the definitive version, is the comic. The TV show did not do a good job. Yeah. But, you know, it's not true of everything. I think there should be more adaptations of disappointments, personally. Yeah, I think um, uh, I think I think you should. You know, like uh, I've I've mentioned this before. I would love. I don't understand why. I don't understand why there's this like this hunger to remake something that was an initial success. I guess it, from a marketing point of view, of mm. course, there's a reason for it. Make money. But if you yeah. separate it from the idea of you're just there to make money, if you just think about it artistically as well at the same time, then to me it kind of makes more sense to remake what was like a curious failure or you know not a clear yeah, failure, but yeah. certainly something that didn't go the way maybe it was originally intended something like off the top of my head like i mentioned it before like alien 3 as like a disappointment for david fincher at the start of his career and how he felt like yeah. he was kind of screwed over that way with the studio at the time and didn't i know there's the director's cut version but even so it makes mm. more sense to me to take something like that and then give that person who's now, you know, this incredible auteur, like established a career for himself to go yeah. back if he wanted to. And just like, why couldn't you just go and remake Alien 3 the way you originally intended or wanted it to be? Now you're suddenly this huge success and talent that the world loves. Like maybe, <laughs> maybe the Snyder cut of Justice League is a <laughs> blessing in disguise. Maybe that will open the door for these possibilities. Yeah, who knows? Because that's exactly what that is apparently, isn't it? Yeah. Good yeah, point. never thought of that. That is uncut Zack Snyder. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. I would rather see uncut David Fincher. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but um, 
yeah, no, that's 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 really interesting. I mean, I don't know off the top of my head. Let's say even something that was a disappointment in one medium, mm. try to remake it in another medium, in a different medium, yeah, and see if how like it say works a there. novel that wasn't that well received, but you find the concept intriguing enough that oh maybe it will work as a mm. as a film or something like that. Like say for example, it by Stephen King. Yeah. Right. And I like the book. I grew up loving Stephen King. I really like his ideas, his concepts, his metaphors. I love that even towns in his, um, you know, like everything's in Maine. The t- but the town is kind of a character in itself. I love that kind of vibe. But his books aren't always the most fun to read. And there's always a lot of stuff in them that you can just tell is... Dude, your editor needed to be on your case a little more. But fuck, he's Stephen King. Let him do what he wants. You know, he went full Zack Snyder Justice League on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then less so the second part of that, those film adaptations, but definitely the, the, the first part, which I thought was pretty flawless, did a great job of trimming the fat of that book. I'm not saying that it, the book, was a disappointment, mm-hmm. but I think... In terms of storytelling, structure and, you know, pacing, the film was like almost pitch perfect. The first film. Second film, but that's, you know, that's an idea as well. Like pick a book that you might have been like, oh, I really like the concept of that, but the execution was a little off. Know, have more movies like that yeah before, before we wrap up to take it back to your original question then i'm going to answer your original question in, with in relation to something like that which is uh when i first when i when i started reading it which i i, I didn't experience until maybe was it before the first the the first of the two films came out I think it was, mm-hmm. but just before that. Maybe I've been reading it the year before that or something. But yeah, when I was reading it anyway, I, I didn't I wasn't that familiar with my experience of Stephen King through like reading his, his work. Uh, is more like from the point of view of seeing like the film adaptations. But yeah. um yeah, I was I got to a particular page where it mentioned Shawshank Prison. And yeah. that just got my imagination running riot and I just thought to myself I want to see. So please write this by if you feel like doing this, Carlos, or anyone, any <laughs> listeners out there. Um, <laughs> if somebody wants to create a comic adaptation of the following concept, but I was thinking to myself, I would love to see some version of either the end of Shawshank Redemption when Andy Dufresne is crawling through the shit and the filth of the sewers escaping the prison that instead of him coming through the right manhole and escaping into the rain to celebrate his freedom, he ends up going down another tunnel and encountering Pennywise. Nice. <laughs> and uh, either either that happening to him or maybe, you know, you've got like a, a chain gang of prisoners who are escaping the prison as well and then you could explore the idea that they all end up encountering Pennywise in the sewer system and having to face their own fears and all the things that they did as prisoners, um, the, the oh, things yeah. that were the reason behind them being uh, in the prison in the first place, having to explore all their inner demons that way through fighting Pennywise yeah. in the sewer system. I thought that would be very cool. Uh, so yeah, that that's my dream adaptation. If anybody wants to 
do a mashup of those two universes together. I'd love to see Very that. Cool. <laughs> That'd be fun. Very cool. A a king verse. A king verse, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Or Stephen, if you're listening, you know it's a great idea. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> do it, Steve. <laughs> do it, Steve. Go on, Steve. Make it for oh. me. <laughs> Steve. 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 <laughs> if anyone knows Stephen who's listening, <laughs> tell him to tune in. There you go. Free idea for you. All I ask is a, a free copy of the comic whenever it comes out. Nice. But there's no other, like, novels or comics that you've read that haven't been adapted into TV shows or films that you'd like to see, or even video games, you know? Like, because the video game experience is, I think, severely underrated outside mm-hmm. the gaming community in terms of storytelling. Yeah. Um. You know, there's some serious... Taking serious it way games. back, taking it way back for you if you're going on that front to... Uh, to the early it. days of point and click adventures and to um uh to Monkey Island and uh oh my god Spielberg's Spielberg uh, uh I think Lucasfilm have an involvement in the production of that as well but yeah there yeah, for one of those big boys to come yeah. along and create hook hook to me was a very disappointing experience of Steven Spielberg <laughs> exploring the the world of swashbuckling it wasn't didn't quite live up to yeah what my imagination hoped, but uh, I've always been a fan of, uh, yeah, a bit of swashbuckle and pirates and stuff like that, and that's that's a very fun, enjoyable story with great characters and a comedic edge to it and stuff, so yeah. I, I guess you kind of almost got an aspect of that with Pirates of the Caribbean a bit there, so it's kind of like, it's, kind, bit, yeah. it's kind of been done a bit already. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that'd be a fun one. I don't know. But, you know, there's, there's I mean, it's not like, oh, the, those pirates the Caribbean films were made now now we can't make any more pirate yeah, movies yeah. I mean, no, 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 they're no. making 10 superhero films a year let's let's get some more pirate movies <laughs> out there <laughs> check them out why not we'll have to do a guilty pleasures episode at some stage as well Cutthroat Island oh, definitely. that's on the list <laughs> yeah we go in pirate movies cool. uh, Cutthroat Island I know it's Demolition a, I know Man. it's a terrible terrible film but that doesn't stop me from enjoying it <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right, I'll start thinking about some guilty pleasures then. Cool, that could yeah. definitely be a fun extra one for everybody. Cool, Very I hope cool. you all enjoyed that. That was a bit of a, a long rant from us both, but uh, there you go, something a bit different for you. Fill, Very cool. Fill that gap. I think we we did actually do. We did actually have uh, stuff to talk about. We did, yeah. I was racking my brains for for like oh, I didn't read anything new this week. I don't know what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> there true, we go. Yeah. We did all right. Cool. Thanks again. More bonuses soon. More bonuses soon. What I'm about about more uh, more episodes soon. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, this fills the gap in between everything else getting wrapped up in the, our daily lives. But yeah, as always, do your homework. Subscribe, follow on all the podcast platforms: mm-hmm. Spotify, Red Circle. Share, share our knowledge. Share our knowledge. Yes, and uh, do all that. We shall see you soon. Cool. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.